The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone, this is Mary Woods and I'm your host today at One Hour at a Time. And we have a great guest, um, Some of someone who I'm sure a lot of you have known and have either read his books or you have been to workshops or um, courses that he's taught. Our guest today is Carlton Erickson, who is a research scientist and the Distinguished Professor of Pharmacology, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies, and Director of the Addiction Science Research and Education Center in the College of Pharmacy at the University of Texas at Austin. Carlton has published over 260 peer review and professional articles, and he's the Associate Editor of Scientific Journal, Alcoholism, Clinical, and Experimental Research. He is the author of a 2000 book titled The Science of Addiction from Neurobiology to Treatment, which is I highly recommend if you haven't read it. It won a Hamilton Book Award in 2008. He is a recipient of the Betty Ford Visionary Award in 2000, the 2003 Pat Shields CCAT Award, the 2004 Fred French Award for Educational Achievement, the Nelson J. Bradley Award for Lifetime Achievement in 2007, and the John P. McGovern Award for Excellence in Medical Education in 2009. Um, Carlton's going to be speaking to us about neurobiology and what we need to know, both as clinicians and for patients. And um, welcome, and thank you for spending an hour with us, Carlton. Good afternoon, Mary. So um, I think this area of um, addiction treatment is fascinating. When I went to nursing school a long time ago, we studied anatomy and physiology. And then about 15 years ago, what I realized is they've identified part of the brains that weren't there 20 years ago. We we have so much more understanding of the brain and how it develops than than we did. And um, I just think it's essential if we're going to provide good addiction treatment to understand how the brain works. Me too. Can you share a little bit, um, I guess, Probably the best place to start is is kind of in the beginning. How is the brain affected by substance use disorders? Well, we have to start out with a basic brain area that all what we call addicting drugs uh, affect, and that is called the brain's reward pathway. The scientists know it as the mesolimbic dopamine system, so that suggests that this neurotransmitter, which I think almost all of your listeners have heard about, dopamine is the major transmitter that makes that pathway work. And uh, very briefly what happens is that uh, <clears throat> you, can, you can point to this brain area to get some ideas to where it is if you just put your fingers in the shape of a V and put those in the middle of your forehead and then you take another finger and put it above your right or left ear and imagine where those lines are crossing where you're pointing and that's essentially where this brain area is. And the reason you use two fingers in the front is there's one 
portion of the of this uh, brain area on the right of the brain and one portion on the left. It is essentially the pleasure pathway of the brain, or also called the reward pathway. And we know that when it's activated during our normal day-to-day lives, uh, it'll, it releases dopamine in the pathway and allows us to uh, have a sensation uh, that we call pleasure. In the situation of addiction, which is more precisely scientifically known as chemical dependence, uh, in addiction or chemical dependence, what has happened is something's gone wrong with that reward pathway, and now it's sending the wrong signal up to the front part of the brain, the frontal lobes, which is where the messages are interpreted. And now the, ha- the thing that happens is you lose your ability to make the proper judgment about using drugs, you lose proper decision-making ability, and you run on impulse. Uh, so that, in a nutshell, is what happens in addiction, and it's all based upon that brain area that was prob- probably discovered about 20, 25 years ago. Are some people more vulnerable? Are, do some people, are they born with a, a diminished uh, reward pathway, or is it something you acquire? Yeah, we don't exactly know uh, whether people are born with the diminished uh, function of that pathway, but we certainly know that chemical dependency is, an, is a genetically driven uh, disease, which means that up to 60% of people who have chemical dependency or, or addiction um, have the pre-acquired tendency to have that disease. And so when drugs are taken at the same time and um, the drugs hit the brain's reward pathway, then everything pops together and the individual loses control over their drinking and drugging. And that's the primary symptom of chemical dependency as we know it today. What are the essentials that people, either um, patients or or um, clinicians need to know? The essentials are um, in three different areas, I think. One is using proper terminology. And you'll notice I've been kind of struggling to, to use addiction and chemical dependency together. And, and the reason is that the word addiction means so many things, different things to different people. Um, I think our, many of our listeners today would think about the president's use of the term addiction to oil, uh, we also have heard about cell phone addiction, lingerie addiction. I saw an article in Time magazine about a year ago that was talking about suntan booth addiction. And, and you know, when used that way, it's not very scientific. And so the scientists tend to use the words chemical dependency based upon what we can diagnose using some very good diagnostic criteria that have been published by the American Psychiatric Association. So that's the first thing is using the proper terminology. The second thing is knowing the basics of neuroscience as I began to explain them there with the mesolimbic dopamine system or reward pathway. And then the third thing is to understand that based upon our knowledge of what's gone wrong with with the brain, we can now begin to understand why treatment works for addiction and why people get better. Many people get better. Some don't because they have a very severe form of the disease. But um, once and for all, we know now that the treatment of the chemically dependent individual does work much of the time, and that gives us hope to help even more people in the future as we continue to learn to have more research in this area and be able to put it into action. Um, to kind of go back to the first part that you were saying, how to get the, the terms right, what are some other terms that are confusing? 
Another term that's confusing is abuse. Um, the, um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 4th edition, and I know that's a big mouthful, uh, is the diagnostic manual published by the American Psychiatric Association that I mentioned earlier. And inside that diagnostic manual are two monographs that talk about drug use problems. The first one of those drug use problems is drug abuse, and the second one is chemical dependence. Chemical dependence is the brain disease. So when people say that addiction is a brain disease, what they're really talking about is chemical dependency is a brain disease based upon the 20 to 25 years of neurobiology and genetics research that has accumulated. Drug abuse is another serious problem in our society, but it's not a disease. It's people making bad choices and continuing to make bad choices until they run into trouble. Uh, so the treatments that we have today, if you were to send someone to a good treatment center, uh, generally focus on those people who are most seriously ill, and those are the individuals who have chemical dependency, and uh, that's addiction, which is the brain disease. And so uh, drug abusers are the ones who tend to end up in jail. Um, they don't quite reach the level of satisfying the psychiatric criteria for dependence. Uh, they may live lives of quiet desperation. Uh, they may end up in 12-step programs. 12-step programs work very well for drug abusers. And by the way, 12-step programs also work for individuals who have chemical dependency as well, as well, but chemical dependency is more difficult, and we often find that people really struggle in 12-step programs when they're chemically dependent because it's kind of hard to turn a, tr a brain disease around. Uh, with 12-step therapy. But 12-step saves a lot of uh, people's lives, and m much of the time it's for drug abusers. Um, and so that's good because it doesn't cost any money. These days it's hard to get into treatment centers. They're so costly. We don't have insurance coverage. Uh, so it's, it's a good thing that we have a, n a number of different types of treatments out there. What are some other things that um, people need to be mindful of? You've, you've said a couple times that you've been we've been able to demonstrate that treatment works, and yet time and time again I hear people really um, challenge that. And certainly if treatment worked really well, it seems like it would be better funded. It, it certainly uh, seems that way, and I'm sure that uh, you know, but maybe uh, many of our listeners don't know, that Congress passed a law last year uh, which was called the Mental Health and Parity, uh, Mental Health and Drug Abuse Parity Act, uh, that essentially um, mandates insurance coverage for the treatment of individuals uh, who have chemical dependency and drug abuse problems. And so, there's our first clue that at least the government, and Congress, um, and hopefully other people are starting to understand that putting money into treatment really does help an awful lot of individuals. And I'm not in recovery. I like to say. You don't have to have cancer to be a cancer researcher. Right. And, uh, but I've tried to learn about this disease for the last 35 years by going to 12-step meetings and by going to treatment centers and sitting in on the professionals and residence programs and things like that. And I've seen how treatment helps so many people. They, if you're at a professionals and residence um, program at a major treatment center, for five days, you can actually see people getting better in those five days. And then you take a look at their long-term outcomes. Many of those people never go back to drug use. Unfortunately, you know, what our popular press and television and everything tends to focus on is the negative 
uh, aspects of addiction and chemical dependency. And now all we see is people having relapse and people not making it, people dying. And that makes better press than somebody who's bright and happy and said that I kicked this disease. Well, we've certainly seen that in the news recently, haven't we? <laughs> we certainly have, yes. It does sell, uh, I guess it sells newspapers and it sells uh, time on the Internet as well. Exactly. Um, so what are the things that um, we should be looking for in terms of essentials? How do we know that a program is um, really respecting the neurobiology of uh, chemical dependency? How, what, what kind of treatments would we be seeing? Well, you know, there are a lot of good treatment centers out there that are using what we call evidence-based um, principles. And evidence-based simply means that they have been proven to work through research. Uh, so if, if you were to go into any good treatment center, and there are a lot of bad treatment centers out there, by the way, that don't use these evidence-based principles. They, they give you essentially 30 days uh, of being off of a drug, and then they make you comfortable and they may give you some spot treatments and things like this. And uh, in my mind, those treatment centers really are not helping people who are chemically dependent. They might be helping people who are drug abusers who have a lot of money to go to a treatment center like that. But uh, the treatment centers that are using evidence-based principles would include things like 12 steps. 12 steps is now considered to be an evidence-based program because it's been studied so much over the last 10 years. We know, we know that it works. We know generally who it works best for. We know the type of people who go into 12-step programs. And so that's why 12 steps is a mainstay. It's a foundation of most good treatment centers. They don't only do 12-step programs, but they will do other things. Another thing that's starting to come in is new medications, medications that re reduce relapse and that in some cases reduce craving for the drug. And these medications are not magic bullets. They're not... They're not supposed to be given by physicians who don't know how to use them or prescribe them. Whenever they're used, they have to be used with counseling or 12-step programs or abstinence-based treatment, and then they'll help some people. And we'll be right back um, with more with Dr. Erickson. And if you have any questions, please give us a call. We'll be right back after this commercial. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, and happy spring. It's um, 80 degrees and beautiful in Texas, and it's about 34 degrees and snowing in New Hampshire. So I hope you're all closer to Texas than New Hampshire. Um, before we went to break, we were talking with Dr. Erickson about some of the essentials that people need to know um, to treat chemical dependency and substance use disorders. And um, there are a lot of myths about what works and what doesn't work, and there's a lot of myths about um, how people become addicted. Can um, you share with our audience some of the myths that people may think are really true? Sure. Um, <clears throat> because I mentioned earlier uh, in the program that the word addiction has so many different meanings for different people, um, some scientists like the word addiction, some people, some scientists really prefer the, the term chemical dependency. And, and they're somewhat synonymous. However, because they're not totally synonymous and because we've learned so much more over the last uh, 10 to 15 years about addiction and chemical dependency, um, it's now possible to create, uh, talk about some myths. For example, one myth is that marijuana is not addicting. We have a lot of uh, teenagers and adolescents who believe that marijuana is not addicting. And one of the reasons that's come about is because it's been hard to show that marijuana produces withdrawal. And this, this idea of withdrawal equaling addiction is an old idea, which is no longer true. So just because we don't, just because we have a hard time seeing withdrawal symptoms from marijuana, which do occur, but they're not as drastic as with heroin or alcohol, um, people have assumed that marijuana is not addicting. So let's put this to rest right, right now. Withdrawal is not the same as addiction or chemical dependency. In fact, in the diagnostic criteria uh, that psychiatrists and, and physicians can use and good, uh, good chemical dependency counselors can use, the, there are seven criteria for diagnosing dependence or addiction, and you have to have three or more of those criteria in the previous 12-month period. One of those seven is withdrawal, but just having withdrawal does not make you addicted or does not allow you to be diagnosed as having what we call chemical dependency. You know, and, and there are some, there are many people who have three of the other seven criteria and no withdrawal who are considered to be addicted or chemically dependent. So this word, uh, this word withdrawal being equivalent to addiction is no longer thought to be the case, and therefore that opens up 
a whole other batch of, of um, myths, such as in the old days, we used to think that cocaine was not addicting because you didn't see much withdrawal. Right. So nowadays, in spite of the fact that you don't see physical withdrawal from cocaine, we know it's highly dependence-producing, it's highly addicting, and therefore this withdrawal equaling addiction is an old idea that needs to be put to rest. I can go more. I have more myths, too, but I'll I'll wait for you to ask. (laughs) Well, one of the things that um, I think a lot of people believe is that the first time you do heroin, you become addicted to it, or the first time you use cocaine, you become addicted to it. Mm Mm-hmm. And and, uh, I've heard those same stories, and and it's an interesting anecdotal story for people to say, oh, yeah, the first drink I had, I knew I was addicted, or the first time I used crack, I knew I was addicted. That has not yet been borne out by scientists. It may be true. It may not be true. But it is possible, theoretically, based upon the science that we know right now, for an instant addiction to occur. In fact, there have been at least three studies with nicotine to indicate that the criteria for dependence are met the first time that adolescents use nicotine. They smoke cigarettes. Many of them will say, I I, I can't stop anymore. And so if you kind of examine those stories and put it under a rigorous scientific scrutiny, uh, you do come up with peer-reviewed publications that say, With nicotine, it is possible to become addicted with the very first use of a cigarette. So it makes it possible then it could happen with alcohol, it could happen with methamphetamine, it could happen with cocaine. Uh, I generally tend to think that based upon the popular stories that I hear from people who are addicted, that about 20% of people who will will report that they, they lost control over the use of the drug with the very first time that they used it. And uh, so I think it needs to be examined. It simply hasn't been examined by scientists yet. So it could be a myth. It could be true. We just haven't studied it. What about the um, thing we used to hear about once you um, damage your brain at a cellular level, you don't regrow those cells? Uh, Yes, that is uh, generally a a true uh, neurophysiological belief. However, there have been some new studies lately to indicate that nerve cells can uh, regrow and most of that work is coming out of the neurological literature with uh, spinal cord uh, regrowth and spinal cord um, damage and, and things like that. So we're beginning to overturn that old belief. However, once an individual becomes chemically dependent based upon exposure to the drug and perhaps with their genetic preloading, uh, we know that that is a permanent disease. Uh, and the diagnostic criteria today tell us that because once... Once you're chemically dependent, you're always chemically dependent. The thing we do these days, however, is we get rid of the symptoms of being unable to stop using that drug through formal treatment so that the symptoms are no longer there, but the individual still has the brain disease as evidenced by maybe 30 years later, somebody who's a recovered alcoholic starts to try a glass of wine or something because they've been sober for so long. They say, oh, I deserve this and then they go right back into their disease. So we know that the basic problem in the mesolimbic dopamine system is still there. What we can do is we can take care of the symptoms. If people continue to pay attention to it by going to 12-step meetings on a regular basis or by going back for treatment or by relapsing um, and they go back for more treatment, we know that we can get them back into their regular sobriety and they'll hopefully stay for the rest of the, their lives. 
Um, there is a, a group of people that advertise on CNN that say they, they can cure your addiction. Is there, can, can people be cured? <clears throat> that, uh, that is a bogus advertisement. It, there's no scientific evidence for that. And I really bristle every time I see the, or hear the word cure, like on CNN, because cure means getting rid of the cause, and then the cause never comes back. And we've really never cured anything in medicine. What we do so well in medicine is we get rid of the symptoms. So in Parkinson's disease, for example, a person will always have Parkinson's disease, but you can reduce the symptoms by giving them certain medications, certain types of treatments, and so forth. So curing something, um, and I believe that advertisement used to say that this was, this was not a disease, but they had a cure for it, which is kind of hypocritical to say that. How can you have a cure if it's not a disease? Uh, and so, yeah, I have, a, I have a really hard time with treatment centers that advertise that they can cure something. Um, are there any other myths that uh, we, we should highlight? Yeah, an interesting uh, crack babies are born addicted is, is another one. Um, first, there's two myths within that statement, crack babies are born addicted. First of all, it shouldn't be called crack babies. That is a media term. Uh, unfortunately, it was not a scientific term. It was actually traced back to a time when a television crew came into a neonatal ward with their big camera on their shoulder and pointed at a baby in the, in the bassinet where they had been told by the doctors that that baby was born of a mother who used crack during pregnancy. We now know that women don't only use one drug. It's very rare to see a woman only using crack or cocaine. Generally, they're also using alcohol, smoking uh, cigarettes, maybe smoking a little pot on the side, and they have poor prenatal care, and uh, they're undernourished. It's no wonder that the baby has a problem, but they shouldn't be called, labeled with that pejorative term, crack baby, for the rest of their life. They should be called a baby in distress. Furthermore, people take it as when they're in distress, they think that they're going through withdrawal, and therefore they label it as an addicted baby, which is totally incorrect. We have to say it's a baby in distress, born of a mother who was using drugs during pregnancy, and now we're going to see how we can take care of that baby. And chances are great that baby will never become addicted uh, in their lives. They will not have a more, more of a propensity for drugs. Uh, so I really like to, to nail that particular myth. Um, I was just recently in Florida at a meeting where um, one of the neonatal nurses said that 50% of the babies born in that hospital are what what she described as um, addicted, that they have them, they're low birth weight babies, they um, are highly irritable, they're often um, put on a step-down dosage of um, some type of an opiate, mm-hmm. and some babies have been in the neonatal neonatal intensive care for two to three months. Right. So um, there's no doubt about it that those babies have some problems. The, the problem is that that neonatal nurse is using the term addiction in a very colloquial, broad, subjective way. Um, most of those babies, I would be willing to bet, are going to get better. Uh, they're ne- never going to become addicted. They're never going to even use drugs. And remember, we know that chemical dependency is a lifetime disease. If they're born addicted, then we ought to see that later in their lives, and we simply don't see that. So I don't like the, word, the use of the word addiction addicted there. 
we should say those babies are born of mothers who use drugs and they're in distress. And we need to help, help find out how to get them uh, out of their distress. And even if they're born small, based upon the effects of the drug in utero, if they're born low for their normal birth weight, they'll often catch up in six months or so. So we, we fail to tell people the good news about how to handle babies that have been born that way. Well, we know that there's um, addiction uh, has a or chemical chemical dependency has a, has a genetic component to it. So, um, so, so these young babies aren't any more genetically susceptible than me, who's Irish Catholic and has a long line of alcoholics in my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the genetics could pass on to the baby, of course, but we don't even know if the mothers were addicted. So, if they're not chemically dependent and they're just abusers. There's no genes to be uh, given to those babies that would cause them to be addicted because drug abuse, remember, is a choice. It doesn't have a significant genetic a, uh, genetic load associated with it. Therefore, there's nothing nothing to pass. So, you know, if you had if you had an experiment with a hundred chemically dependent women, all diagnosed as chemically dependent, and they all had they all were pregnant, then you would expect a high rate of chemical dependency in the babies that were born from those hundred women. And you should be able to measure that 30, 40 years after they were born. Has anybody ever done that? No. That's because it's very difficult to do 30 to 40 year studies. <laughs> George Valiant did it. <laughs> That's true. Well, and it's really we'll be, unusual. Yeah, we'll be right back after this next commercial with uh, Dr. Erickson. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back, everyone. Our guest is Carlton Erickson, and we're talking about addiction, addiction essentials, the go-to guide for clinicians and patients. Everything we're talking about in this um, hour, I think, is going to be in Carlton's new book. So um, if you're not getting everything from what we're saying, eventually you can go and um, get the hard copy and uh, read it at your leisure. It'll be available in mid-June, I just found out today. Okay, great. Um, before we went to break, we were talking about the rate of um, the estimate, well, the rate of developing um, chemical dependency. Um, do you know what that is for folks? Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, a person could ask, if I use this drug, what are the chances I'll become addicted or chemically dependent on this drug, even if I were to use the drug my whole life? And actually some scientists looking at data in the 1990s in a large um, what we call epidemiological study across the United States, uh, they looked at the, uh, the drug uh, reports of drug use from the families that they were interviewing, and they came up with a table of, uh, called Estimated Lifetime Risk for Developing Dependence. And this is kind of like an insurance uh, table where the, they can predict how long people are going to live and so forth. And I think that you're our listeners might find that the numbers are quite interesting. Uh, the, high, the one that had the highest number was nicotine at 32%, which means that if you smoke or use tobacco products, your chances of becoming dependent or addicted to nicotine are one in three. Uh, a lot of people think that that number is way too low because they, everybody has a friend who's had a hard time stopping smoking. But we know it's not just dependence that, is, that makes it difficult to stop or being addicted that makes it difficult to stop. There are other things like habits of when you use the cigarette and things like that. Uh, another interesting number is heroin, 23%. I don't know about you, Mary, but I've heard people say, well, if people use heroin, they're addicts. Uh, this number says, no, only one in four of people who use heroin are chemically dependent or addicted. All the other uses of heroin would be called uh, users, misusers, abusers, recreational users, criminals, bad people, or whatever you want to call them, but they're not dependent or addicted and never will be, interestingly enough. I've heard the same thing said about cocaine, and cocaine is at 20%. So one in five people who use cocaine become addicted or chemically dependent. All the rest of the users would be abusers, misusers, recreational users, or commonly called criminals or addicts. And that's simply wrong uh, to call them addicts. Alcohol is 15%. That's, that's a pretty solid number. We've known that number for about 20 years. Amphetamines, 11%, which means 1 in 10 chances of becoming dependent on amphetamines. And the unfortunate thing about this survey was that they didn't break, break down the data into different types of amphetamines. So we might expect that methamphetamine would be higher than the other amphetamines like Ritalin, or Adderall, or uh, even dextroamphetamine. But we don't have any numbers, so it's only speculation. My guess is that methamphetamine would be up around cocaine at 20% or something like that. Another interesting number, cannabis, marijuana. Uh, 9%, 1 in 10 people who use marijuana can become dependent or addicted. Sedative benzodiazepines like Valium, Xanax, and so forth, 9%, 1 in 10 people. And then the, the last one I want to mention is 
analgesic opioids used in a hospital or used by physicians where they're being used for pain control, and that's 9%. One in 10 people would become dependent based upon the use of opioids during treatment for chronic or acute pain. That's in contrast to heroin, which is 23%, a similar drug, out, uh, an illegal drug out being used recreationally, uh, 23%. So we know that when, we use, when people use drugs recreationally, the rate of dependence goes way up compared to when those therapeutic drugs, when those drugs are used therapeutically for the proper uses. And it probably has something to do with control of the dose uh, or uh, maybe the, the pain that people are, are uh, being treated for with a drug like uh, morphine or Oxycontin. Um, maybe uh, the pain tends to reduce the likelihood of becoming dependent. Scientists are still examining that. But aren't those numbers interesting? I think they're... I think most people have never even thought about what, what's the risk if I use this drug of becoming dependent or addicted. They are extremely interesting, especially to somebody who's been in the treatment profession for 30 years. That it seems like the numbers should be a lot higher. Right. But I guess we're seeing the skew of the bell curve. We're seeing the other end of the bell curve. Exactly, yes. We're, we're seeing addicted patients all day, so we tend to think that everyone's addicted. Right, right, yeah. right. And so what is the prevalence of if you have, let, let's say I am um, dependent on benzodiazepines, what, what's the prevalence or the chance that I will then become um, dependent on marijuana or opiates or alcohol? Yeah, we don't have those numbers. Unfortunately, the, uh, the studies did not include uh, people using two drugs at one time. So uh, we, have to, we, have to, we could only guess, uh, and hopefully we'll have those numbers someday. Well, we talk about some drugs being gateway drugs, and we mm-hmm. talk about certainly if you go in the in the halls where um, people are participating in 12-step meetings, they talk about a drug is a drug is a drug, and um, it's best to stay away from all of them. And, and, I, and that's still, still true. Uh, the one thing we haven't discussed yet is how these drugs match up with certain neurotransmitters in the brain's reward pathway. Uh, there are about eight neurotransmitters in the brain, that seem to be associated with chemical dependency or addiction. And uh, these neurotransmitters, first of all, include dopamine, the one we mentioned before, and almost everybody's heard of dopamine. And other ones include serotonin, endorphins, acetylcholine, GABA, glutamate, and some of these chemicals that many people have never heard of. But the important thing is that the drug classes, the drugs themselves, generally work through one or more of those neurotransmitters. So cocaine is known to work through dopamine, for example. Nicotine is, wor- is known to work through the acetylcholine system. Heroin is wor- known to work through the endorphin system. So when one of these neurotransmitter, um, neurotransmitter systems in the reward pathway goes bad, we say it's, called, it's dysregulated. Dysregulated is nothing more than a big scientific word that means something has gone wrong. So when something has gone wrong in the reward pathway with one of these drugs, it means that the reason you have a drug of choice is because that drug was working on the neurotransmitter that has become dysregulated. So to put it into an example, um, an individual who has an endorphin dysregulation, means something's gone wrong with the endorphin system in the brain's reward pathway, that person will tend to be attracted to an opioid like morphine or heroin 
because it's almost like that opioid was trying to fix the dysregulation. So when people use the drug, they become connected to that drug based upon their neurochemical dysregulation. That's really exciting because it helps us to understand which drugs people are attracted to, and that's how we get the term drug of choice. Now, some people will have many drugs of choice, which leads us to speculate that we, that individual may have many neurotransmitter dysregulations in the, in the brain's reward pathway. It also tells us which ones they should certainly stay away from. Uh, I have a, uh, a friend who's a recovering alcoholic, and he's learned over 40 years of being in AA to stay away from all of the drugs. But he went into the hospital the other day. He was having chest pains, and he had to have um, a procedure, which was very painful. And so they said, John, do you want to have morphine for this? And he said, you betcha. And I was surprised when I heard that. And he, I said, why'd you do that? And he said, because I don't like pain. And he got out after that procedure, and I said, what'd you think about the morphine? He says, oh, I don't see what people see in that stuff. He says, I could never get hooked on that. And uh, so now we know that John's brain is okay with respect to the endorphin system because he, he doesn't like morphine. He's never going to take it again. So he did not cross over. Because he was an alcohol-dependent individual, he did not cross over to morphine. And we know that, that that's a drug that's safe for him to take at some time in the future when he has more pain. But people don't usually go through those types of situations. And so it, the best the best saying that is in AA, once you use a drug, don't use other drugs. And the reason for that is you don't know which neurotransmitter system is dysregulated in your brain. And we have no way of imaging that or um, sam- doing any kind of sampling of blood or anything or spinal fluid to diagnose that either, do we? No, we, we don't. It'd be nice if we did. There are PET scans that have been done on, on chemically dependent individuals and addicts, but uh, for the most part, they're looking for problems with um, uh, neurotransmitter receptors down in the single cell level, and uh, so far they haven't progressed to the place where we could scan somebody before they started using drugs and be able to tell which drugs they might become dependent on. We can't see at that level yet because this dysregulation may not be occurring in something that we can anatomically see. It may be more of a physiological dysregulation that we would never be able to see with a brain scan. It's interesting because, you know, over the years when um, I've talked with people, they'll say, you know, the first time I drank, it's like the lights went on in the world, or the first time I used cocaine, or the first time I used uh, heroin, it was like all of a sudden, you know, something sparked in my brain and I felt normal. Mm-hmm. I've heard those same studies, and, and wouldn't it be, I've heard those same reports, and wouldn't it be nice if we had studies yeah. uh, that could recognize what happens when people take a drug for the first time? I don't think that's ethically very possible, however. <laughs> no, I know, probably not. Um, you know, when we're, talk- we're talking a lot about drugs, but um, certainly one of the most commonly available drugs and one that's been used throughout history is alcohol. And I think that one of the back to the myths, a lot of people think, well, alcohol, is, it's legal, um, it's available, it's, it really doesn't do that much harm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is a, a big problem in society, and it's a, it's a bigger problem trying to trying to um, tell everyone why it's legal, whereas other drugs like marijuana and cocaine and heroin are illegal. 
Um, it, it turns out that alcohol has stood the test of time. It's uh, traditional in our society. It's not traditional in Saudi Arabia. So you know, we, we could get rid of it if uh, there was enough people wanting to. Uh, alcohol is one of the biggest killers. It's also uh, a very difficult drug pharmacologically to to study because it affects essentially every neurotransmitter system. Uh, unlike heroin, which has its own receptor in the brain, alcohol does not have its own receptor. It, it kind of goes throughout the whole brain uh, without stopping, and therefore it's very difficult to find out exactly how it works. I started out 40 years ago trying to understand how alcohol produces intoxication, and we still don't know. Well, and we'll be right back after this commercial, and uh, if you have any questions, please give us a call. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center of recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Carlton Erickson, and we've been talking about a number of different topics related to chemical dependency. And before going to break, we were talking a little bit about um, how difficult it is to understand how alcohol works because it really um, connects to all the neuro 
neurotransmitters. And I'm wondering about um, binge drinking. It seems like there's more and more binge drinking, especially with younger folks, and um, you know whether people are doing shots or funneling or whatever. Um, how does binge drinking affect our kind of like our risk for developing uh, alcoholism? Right. Uh, a big a big question in in the uh, addiction treatment field is whether binge drinking is really chemical dependency or whether it's it's considered drug abuse, people making bad choices. Um, actually, the uh, the definition of binge drinking is kind of interesting. For scientific purposes, it's defined as five or more drinks at a at a sitting, um, and and that's what they use to to do college studies, college binge drinking studies, is five drinks at a time. We all know that that's not a real world situation because uh, if you go by any tailgating uh, event with a football game or you go to bars on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday night, you see people often drinking less than that or more than that. And uh, essentially, binge drinking is just uh, drinking quite a bit. Uh, could range anywhere from, I'd say, three drinks to um, 16 beers in one evening um, or 16 beers over um, the course of a three-hour afternoon waiting to get into a football game. That's That, in my terminology, is binge drinking. So the point I wanted to make is that we don't exactly know... Um, whether binge drinking is addiction or a form of addiction or whether it's people just making bad choices, I tend to fall on the, on the side that thinks that, that it's uh, alcohol abuse, which is people making bad choices. Uh, nevertheless, it's dangerous. It causes a lot of uh, misery in people's lives with drunk driving, uh, with people getting beat up, fights, and so, and so forth. And uh, the, the, the scientific definition is different than the, I think, practical definition. What about process addiction, such as gambling and internet addiction and um, sex addiction? And yeah, it's it's interesting that um, that people want to call those addictions. Uh, I kind of alluded to it when we started the program that we we hear th- terms like cell phone addiction and lingerie addiction, and, and in fact, uh, I think the general public thinks that you can be addicted to anything that you love or that you really really um, want to have a lot of. Uh, and uh, that's not that's not a scientific definition. So, bottom line is in the uh, the um, diagnostic manual that I mentioned earlier, the DSM four, uh, they don't use the word addiction. They uh, for gambling, that's the only so-called process or behavioral addiction that they cover. But in the DSM four, they don't call it an addiction. They call it compulsive gambling disorder. And I actually think that that's more scientifically accurate based upon what we know today. Uh, And therefore, sex addiction, food addiction, Internet addiction, uh, all the other addictions, exercise addiction, those don't appear in the best diagnostic manuals, psychiatric diagnostic manuals that we have. Those don't appear. They're more often called compulsive disorders or impulse control disorders. Now, the new DSM-5 coming out in 2013, which will be a revision of the one that we have right now, has a new section. Uh, the word has leaked out of the committees, actually it's on the, on the web, uh, that they're going to have a section on addiction and related disorders. That's, that's preliminary wording. And they're going to have gambling in that section. But that's the only one they're going to have. That's the only one where apparently there is enough 
scientific evidence to say that the processes involved in compulsive gambling disorder in the brain are similar enough to chemical dependency that they're willing to say it's an addiction. Um, the only other one that they had that came close was Internet addiction, but there's not enough scientific evidence to say that that's an addiction like a drug addiction, and so that's going to be in the appendix for a while. But the DSM-5, even the updated version, 2013, it's going to be published in 2013, will not use the terms sex addiction, food addiction, or any other addiction other than gambling, and then in the appendix, Internet. So whenever I go and talk to counselors, I say, try to stay a word try to stay away from that word addiction because it's too sloppy, it's too subjective, it's too stigmatizing, it's too prejudicial. It causes a lot of problems when people are called addicts when they're really not addicts. To take that a little bit further, you know, we all know people who um, are compulsive um, users of, of sugar or flour or and are morbidly obese. We know people that um, you know, have compulsive behaviors around sex, um, and there are certainly treatment programs for sex addiction and food addiction. Right, and and so you know that's where it gets controversial, is because we have treatment programs out there for these addictions, based upon the twelve step programs in many cases, and so people say, well, if there's a twelve step program for it, it must be an addiction. But you know, I think that's really jumping ahead of the science. We have to call it what it is and try to stay away from pejorative words like addict as much as we can because we know that the word addiction, even with drug addicts, has caused an awful lot of problems in the fact that we don't have enough money for treatment of these individuals. We don't have enough money for research to find out what's causing the problems. We don't have enough money for prevention or education. And so I would suggest that we stay away from the word addiction until the science backs us up. Otherwise, people are going to speculate that these are bad people. And indeed, we Many people have that idea of an, an obese person as a bad person. All they have to do is stop eating, and they'll be okay. And so it's easy to say, ah, they got a food addiction. There again, we've got a bad idea associated with the wrong word. Mm-hmm. Um, how can people learn more about um, the neurobiology of, of chemical dependency and substance abuse? Well, I'm glad you asked. I would like to send them to the best academic website on the neuroscience of recovery in the whole world, <laughs> which is, of course, my website. So let me give it to people. It's www.utexas, one word, dot edu, as an education, slash research, slash A as an apple, S as in Sam, R as in research, E as in education, and C as in center. So it's the alcohol it's the uh, Alcohol uh, Addiction Science Research and Education Center. Okay, so utexas.edu slash research slash A-S-R-E-C. A-S-R-E-C, right, that's the tough part. Okay. Now, now some of your alert listeners are going to say, well, he's being hypocritical. He's using the word addiction in the name of his center, but he really doesn't believe in using the word. <laughs> I don't think I'd get very many people going to that website if I called it the uh, the Dependence Research and Education Center. Uh, so that's why I tend to use that word. But uh, that's a great place to go. Got a lot of myths on there that we can find out why they're myths, a lot of facts about alcohol and drugs, and even some animations of the brain function. 
And is that the best place for people to get in touch with you? It is. It also has my email address there. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing this hour with us. It went by really fast. and It's been fun. Uh, everybody have a great week, and we'll uh, talk with you next week at the same time, same location. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.